Hey, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Current Yield, the uh, Grant's interest rate observer of the air. And uh, I'm Jim Grant. With me, as always, Eric Whitehead at the control panel and the great Evan Lorenz, deputy editor of Grant's. And with us today is Wendy Battleson, who is an authority in art, also a bit of a financial engineer, world traveler, and uh, all-around excellent source of information on the art market. Wendy will hold forth in just a moment. We have uh, two sponsors today. Purple Mattress is one. That's for you insomniacs or uh, others who need a little bit more rest, and Grant's Interest Rate Observer. I'll be talking to John Delberta, who is the friendly voice on the telephone when you give him your credit card information to sign up for even more years of Grant's Interest Rate Observer. So, uh, Wendy, welcome to uh, Current Yield. Thank you so much for having me. Well, it is a pleasure, and constant readers of Grant's Interest Rate Observer will remember the name because Wendy Battleson provided the most plain-spoken, informative, and indeed provoking quotes in the story we ran on uh, September 7th in Grants. And the headline, I, I kind of like the headline, Wendy, was the, it was the deal of the art, which is kind of an election-themed headline. Absolutely. Yeah, but Wendy, I, I, I'm not sure I did full justice in my very brief skimming introduction of your CV, because you spent nearly 10 years at Christie's, and there you uh, were in charge of all manner of uh, financial strategies to uh, move the the, uh, they say move the, in the car business, they move, they move the iron. What do they call it in, in art? Move the canvas? I, I think that's appropriate. Yeah. I like that. Could you tell us, uh, to start with, uh, I mean, Evan has got this great, he furnished me with a great question. All right, here it is. Uh, last month in London, the Banksy painting, Girl with Balloon, self-shredded. And as soon as the gavel came down, or just shortly thereafter, and certainly after the money changed hands, and uh, after people inhaled and gasped, uh, people got to speculate, well, maybe Sotheby's was in on the act and the value of of the damaged painting had actually appreciated owing to the shredding. What is your thought on this? It, it was a pretty shocking thing, and I think it's nice to speculate that Sotheby's may have had a hand in it, um, but it's a very, very small market, <laughs> and if they truly had, somebody would have spilled the beans. So I think the general feeling is it was a great promotional thing for Banksy to do. The buyer of the property was super fortunate. There is some speculation that it increased three times <laughs> over what it hammered down for. Now, would that work with a Picasso? Uh, no, <laughs> it would not. Banksy is sort of a performance artist in uh -huh. addition to an actual artist. So, um, no, it would not work with a Picasso. Yeah. What does it say about the level of trust in the art market that the first response of a lot of people was, Sotheby's was in on this. They, they did something. <laughs> it's a strange market. It's a very transparent market because everything happens out in the public, auction-wise. It's also unregulated, and it's very it's a very small market. Everybody knows everybody else. So if somebody's in on a deal, you learn about it very, very quickly through the gossip mill. What can you, uh, we, okay, we'd like three pieces of gossip in ascending order of, uh, of titillation. All right, so uh, you can think, that's a, that's a question for you to mull over mm -hmm. as we proceed in this discussion, but Evan has furnished me with more than one. Evan, will you please move on to the next question for our guest, Kat Wendy Battleson? Sure. When you spoke to us earlier this year, you said after the financial crisis, prices for contemporary war art bounced back really, really quickly, but then they kind of struggled and stagnated as prices got too high. Um, this weekend, I think, is the start of the New York uh, City um, art auction season. What are your thoughts going forward and, and into the next few weeks? Well, it was an interesting time when the financial markets crashed. Before 2008, Impressionist and Modern Art, so Monet, Degas, those types of artists were incredibly popular. And that's what people were really buying. After the crash, the art market dropped for about six months. People did not know where to put their money. They didn't want to put it into real estate or financial instruments, so they started to put it into tangible assets. And that's when you had a lot of the finance guys really 
pour their money into post-war and contemporary art because it's obvious art. You know when you walk into somebody's house that that's a Warhol on the wall. So money just flowed through. And those people who had held on for a very long period of time before 2008 to Warhols, Basquiat's, things that are more street art, they slowly began putting that property into auctions to be able to capture that increase in interest. So prices, for example, for a Warhol pre-2008 that perhaps would have been $50,000 in 2009, 10, 11, they were selling for 10 or 20 million. So it was a huge increase in the post-war and contemporary market. That cooled about 2015 and it's been flat or declining since. So I think what we're going to see next week in the big auctions at Christie's, Sotheby's and Phillips is a lot more interest in the more traditional impressionist and modern works rather than a focus on post-war and contemporary. Kathy, you told us in the grants piece, and I thought this was uh, one of the more striking quotations that you favored us with, quote, it's dangerous to get big ticket items in the door. That is from the point of view of the uh, the auction house. Why is that? There's huge competition among the auction houses to bring property in. They're not really that concerned about buying buyers, but they're concerned about sourcing material. So when they are presented with an opportunity to bring property in from a collector or an estate, they compete incredibly with each other. A typical collector would bring a piece of property to both Christie's and Sotheby's and oftentimes Phillips and would essentially say, you need to fight it out to give us the best deal. Oftentimes what the auction houses will do is they will provide risky guarantees, meaning that they're really rolling the dice and hoping that somebody is going to buy it in the so, auction. So, for example, if they expect to get $50 million for it, they will guarantee it for 48 or 49 Correct. And sometimes even 50 They'll go that far. So if there's no one in the auction room who's willing to raise their hand and buy it at that level, then it automatically gets purchased by the auction house at that level. They then own that piece of property and they have to pay out to the seller that guaranteed amount, which is where both Sotheby's and some of the other auction houses, including Christie's, have really gotten burned in recent years. Will they get burned again? Uh, it, it, it's risky. What they've tried to do is reduce this risk by finding third-party backers, which are effectively other collectors who agree to step in and bid at that guaranteed rate in return for a fee. And when whoa, a- whoa, 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 whoa. In the uh, world in which we dwell, Kathy, the world of securities, you know, bond stocks and like, paying for a bid would get you... Uh, certainly get your name in the paper and might get you a jail cell. What, what is different about the art world? It's very different because it's really not regulated. And the way that the auction houses speak about this third-party backing off uh-huh. of risk is that it's effectively an insurance policy. Uh-huh. Whether you believe that or not, that's what they say. Is that like picking a bid off the ceiling? Is it, is it a species of fraud? I would not go that far. I think that legally... Well, Evan, would you go that Oh, sometimes. <laughs> Okay, we have to pause here. We have to pause here because uh, we are going to, and everyone's got to stay tuned. And, and no, no, like, uh, uh, was it chipmunk speed either? You got to listen to this because John Delberto and I are going to talk about uh, Grant's Interest Rate Observer, which is this very day, November, what is it? November 7th? Yeah, 7th. I should remember that. We are marking our 35th anniversary, which is extraordinary. I'm what, like 28? Look yeah, it. but still, we're going to do that, and John Delbert is going to help me. He's the first vice president in charge of inviting you to renew your subscription after you subscribe, of course. And John's been doing this for a long time, does it very well. And he has compiled a kind of a catalog of the four most common groundless 
illogical and indefensible reasons people uh, give him for not renewing. I want to air these. That's kind of a sore point with John and with me, but I want John to air these and to respond to them. All right, John, number one. Number one, I'm too busy and I don't have time to read it. My response would be Grants actually buys you time. We read everything that you should be reading every two weeks and distill it for you. All right, number two. Number two, there aren't enough actionable ideas. Frankly, that's completely untrue. Yesterday, I counted up 104 tickers for 2018 alone. How many ideas do you need? Well, that's, you know, the year isn't even done yet. I mean, that's, that's, that's incredible. All right, number three. Yep. Yeah. Number three, it's more expensive than other newsletters. <sighs> Perhaps, but... Yeah, man's got to eat. Price is what you pay, right. value is what you All get. Right. And if you get one good idea from it, it should more than cover the cost of a subscription. All right, number four. Number four, this is a good one. It's over my head and I don't have a degree in economics or finance. And my response is the longer you read it, the easier it becomes to digest. Also, you have to, you, it's a way to learn, right? You, exactly. Yeah. And, and we have resources on our resources tab and they're for non-subscribers Two, definitions, center section, we explain the mechanics of credit creation, online resources, and my favorite section is additional reading. Some of your favorite titles on money, banking, and interest rates, uh, Henry Hazlitt's book, Economics in One Lesson. All right, so John, so at Grants, we like to say that uh, while other publications write down to their readers, we write up to ours. I'm not going to patronize the readers of Grants by by simplifying things and dumbing it down, but I, I think that if you read Grants, you'll become a more knowledgeable investor and a more knowledgeable student of the world around you. So, John DeVora, thank you for being with us. Absolutely. Thanks, Jim. Okay, what I'm going to do is walk all of this back about uh, 18 inches. And I'm going to uh, ask you, Wendy, uh, a very open-ended, indeed, a, a rather ignorant question. And that is, is art a good investment? Uh, that's a tough one. What people will say is you should only buy what you love because there's no guarantee that it's going to go up in value. That said, art has historically increased in value, but it really depends on what you buy and making sure that the buying base of what you buy is large so that there are people to purchase when and if you want to sell. In the world of stocks and bonds, um, there is a school of investing called the Value School, and people in the Value School uh, like to think of themselves as original thinkers, and they uh, think outside uh, the mainstream of, uh, of conventional wisdom, and they buy things that are demonstrably out of fashion on the expectation that value will surface and will command finally its value, its price. And uh, is this not the case in art? Do you, you not go looking for things that are out of fashion? You, you can, and it's, it's really looking not so much at things that are out of fashion, but things that you think are going to become popular in the next few years to maybe a decade. And the things right now that people are talking about are American female abstract expressionist painters. Hmm. So painters who have not traditionally been overvalued, and the interest there is really starting to increase, and probably prices too. This is kind of a pink wave thing? Perhaps. <laughs> now, can you give us the names of some of these artists that we might investigate? Of course. Uh, Helen Frankenthaler is one. Oh, these are living people? Or? Actually, most of them have, have passed away. They oh. were painting in the, the 50s and 60s, mostly in New York. Um, Joan Mitchell is another, and a few of these artists are going to be coming up in the auctions in the next week. And what kind of prices are attached to their work? Several million, um, but there's some speculation that they could go up in the next few years to 10, 20, 30 million. Now, do you see any... Um, currently undiscovered, latently 
famous people that one might be uh, focusing on? If I were, I'd be buying that right now. <laughs> you can tell us later, Wendy. Perhaps. <laughs> one thing that amazed me that you said earlier, you said in 07, a Warhol print might have gone for $50,000, and then in 09 or 10, it might have gone for a couple million dollars, which is a fair bit of inflation. What drove that dramatic increase in price in just like two or three years? It was really a combination of the increase in interest from non-traditional collectors. So some of the finance people who started to get involved in the market. At the same time, there were two, if not three, primary sellers of this kind of art. They're well-known names within the art market. They historically have held on to these sorts of artists for many, many decades and had personal relationships with them. So as they started to put these pieces onto the market, they timed it in such a way as to not flood the market and to actually have increases in prices. And they were extremely successful in doing so. Wendy, you, you have... Um lived all over the world and you have uh, dealt in art in among other places Hong Kong. Now it is rumored that the Chinese are a tough breed of auction buyer to actually collect money from. Is this a canard or is there some measure of truth in this? There is definitely a measure of truth. The mainland Chinese buyer has been a very interesting thing to, to study over the past several years. Um, there is a big focus as being that big buyer in the auction room. So oftentimes you'd see people competing, shouting out numbers, doing things to bring attention to them so that they would be written about as being the new money who was buying the new fabulous thing, and it would increase their power within China. So a lot of that happened several years ago, but the challenge was then collecting from the mainland Chinese. There were currency controls, there were other issues, but ultimately it was that the person wanted the recognition, not necessarily the piece that they were bidding on. You know what, this, this is a feature of the art market that is uh, that to me is dumbfounding. So at the end of a bidding contest, uh, you know, the, the gavel comes down, the price is announced, the seller identified, perhaps. But people, people applaud, right? They applaud a higher price. Isn't like, are you supposed to get a lower price is better? It's very counterintuitive. And I think there's always a bit of surprise by those who work within the auction houses when people applaud a ridiculous price for a piece. <laughs> well, well, well in this, you got to applaud the Chinese. They're getting a Veblen good without paying the Veblen price. Very true. <laughs> Very true. <laughs> yes, yeah, so the prestige comes free. <laughs> Evan, why don't you delve a little further into this ever interesting question of China and its importance in the uh, in the art market? Yeah, if, if you could bear with me, uh, I, I'd like to uh, read two quotes from the CEO of uh, Sotheby's, uh, Tad Smith. Just one was August 6th and one was November 1st. On August 6th, he said, well, clearly the overseas Chinese and Japanese are extremely strong right now. And there are a lot of mainland Chinese that are strong right now and that have convertible cash as well. And then last week, he said, overall, Asian buying in these sales rose 12% in value which was led by great strength in Taiwan, stability in Hong Kong, and a decline of 14% from mainland Chinese buyers. And we went into great detail. Um, he said, I don't think we've ever called out any sort of activity by mainland Chinese buyers, who, by the way, are only 10% of our aggregate sales volume. It, it seems like in three months, he went from saying the Chinese are great for us and to they're a rounding error. It's hard to really understand. Um, there may be a few things at play. It could be that the political situation with tariffs and a bit of bolstering politically has gotten people a little bit concerned within the art market about what is really going to be coming out of China buying-wise. I think, too, the payment issues are always a challenge within the country. Have payment issues become more of a problem? In, in recent months, uh, the Chinese renminbi there, the currency has fallen in value against the dollar, and it does seem like authorities do want to crack down on outflows. Has it been harder for Chinese people to bid and get money outside of the country? It's actually gotten a little bit easier over the last few years. It, it may simply be that the focus and interest on art in China has already crested a few years ago. And 
and that there's just not simply the demand that there was before. Well, I'm not sure about uh, how, uh, this is a little bit of a uh, kind of personal question, Lonnie, but uh, are you sleeping well these days? Hey, I slept great because I just turned in the corrected uh, proof of my uh, forthcoming book, but that's neither here nor there, ladies and gentlemen. I will ram that in the conversation. This is about the purple mattress people. And the rhetorical question, how'd you sleep last night, deserves the proper commercial answer. And I slept lousy because of a stiff neck, back pain, uh, what have you. The mattress was no good. So you're wondering how is purple different from other mattresses? Well, purple mattress will feel different uh, because uh, it uses the brand new material that was developed by an actual rocket scientist. It was not like the memory foam that you're used to. The purple material feels unique because it's both firm and soft at the same time, so it keeps everything supported while still feeling very comfortable. Plus, it's breathable, so it sleeps cool. It ends up giving you the zero gravity feel, like uh, so uh, So it works for any sleeping position. So here are the, what they call in the trade the proof points, ladies and gentlemen. 100 night risk-free trial, backed by a 10-year warranty, free shipping and returns, free in-home setup and old mattress removal. You're going to love purple. And right now, um, our listeners will get a free purple pillow with the purchase of a mattress. That's in addition to the great free gifts you're um, offering statewide. Just text GRANT, G-R-A-N-T, to 47-47-47. The only way to get this free pillow so is to text GRANT, G-R-A-N-T, to 47-47-47. That's GRANT, G-R-A-N-T, 47-47-47. Like that. Thank you, Purple. Wendy, I I see on your most formidable resume a list of uh, deals and structures and strategies that you have helped to design when you were at Christie's, and uh, they would do justice to a financial engineer, professor of financial engineering at the Columbia Business School. And a few of these things include uh, third-party backing off of risk, uh, financial advances, loans, and principal trading of art. Now, um, uh, this to some might seem counterintuitive. After all, art is is meant to be above such things as mere money. Uh, But is the art market a species of of a leveraged financial market? By leverage, I mean, you know, debt enhanced. Uh, People uh, borrow money with which to buy stocks and bonds. They borrow money with which to buy art. They do. It's actually, it's something that has increased a lot since 2008. And it was really a result of the demand from the buyers and from the sellers who wanted to take this asset and really turn it into more of a financial instrument, even though it doesn't typically function that way. So people began demanding guarantees, advances, because they didn't want to reach into their own pocket. They also really focused on taking their art collections and borrowing against those. And traditional banks simply do not do art loans. They take a look at the full balance sheet of a client if they're interested in a loan. So that created an opportunity for boutique lenders to pop up and to be able to charge pretty outrageous um, interest rates, at least in the eyes of people who were used to borrowing at a very low rate. And they have really done extremely well. What kind of rates do they get? They're typically between 8 and 12%, um, inclusive of the quarterly LIBOR. Right. So this is on top of uh, London Interbank offered rate. It, it depends. It's all a negotiation, yeah. um, but it's it's a pretty good return. But if, if you um, are prepared to pay, say, 10% on a loan, what does that say about your personal credit quality, and what does it say about the risks that the lender is taking? You'd be pretty 
surprised. A lot of the people who borrow at those rates are extremely wealthy people. They have complicated structures in their other assets that they hold. There may be family trusts. There may be other restrictions on them actually being able to leverage those other assets. And if they really believe that the piece that they're going to buy or that they're going to borrow against is going to increase in value over and above that interest rate, uh, they're willing to take that risk. Huh. So, so is, the, is the art market uh, then, as we say, interest rate sensitive? If rates continue to go up, will this uh, dent uh, the uh, up creep of art prices or, or suppress that it, rise? It, it probably is going to suppress it a bit. Um, I think there's generally a concern that with interest rates creeping up right now, that that could negatively impact the market. So, uh, so if you watch television, now I don't, I don't watch television at all. But the times I do, I, <laughs> you, see, you see these ads for reverse mortgage loans. And I think, I think actually the truth is that they are, these people are talking to me. I'm like 70, yeah, fine, 72 years old. They think that I need a reverse mortgage loan because the kids have left us. So how do reverse mortgage loans work in art? So this is, it's a very unique concept and it's something that has not been um, fully rolled out within the art market, but I think it's, it's a product that has a lot of opportunity. Essentially what a reverse mortgage would do in the art world is it would permit someone who was an older collector to keep the art in their wall, right. borrow against it today, and then ultimately the lender and or a deal that they may strike with an auction house would ultimately be selling the art in the future. Paying what do you off mean the by loan, ultimately? Well, it, for tax reasons, <laughs> historically, it's been better to get the step up in yeah. basis than All right. to, uh, yeah, to well. not. I guess it's an ultimate in all of our lives. Yeah, I'd like to ask one other question. So with more and more big deals demanding, you know, uh, guarantees so um, so the seller doesn't actually take any price risk, how, how do buyers respond to this? Do they like seeing a guarantee in there? Does that help with the breadth of bids or does it hurt that? My experience is that it's not particularly helpful on the bidding to have a guarantee, particularly if the guarantee has a third-party backer. And the reason being is that other buyers presume that that third-party backer who's taking on that risk of the guarantee has some inside information and may also potentially be talking up that piece of property just before the auction in order to get an even bigger windfall on the financing fee. So it's a bit complicated, but I don't see guarantees generating more bids. What are the people in the art world talking about among themselves that they're not talking to us about. <laughs> That's a tough one. Within the art market, I think there is oftentimes a view that the traditional auction model, which has been around for the last 250 years, is not as innovative as some of the other ancillary businesses that run off of the auction market. Things like um, data companies, technology companies, lending against art. Those are the groups that are sort of the more interesting and the more innovative right now. And I think that those are probably where we're going to see some real increase in profit and business is within those ancillary businesses. You know, this, this of course, is the age of, uh, of disruption, of creative destruction, of uh, well-established companies finding themselves a little bit behind the eight ball because they haven't just haven't kept up. Now, Sotheby's and Christie's and Phillips at risk of being disrupted by uh, 20-somethings that uh, we don't even know their names? Well, that, that's a really big challenge for the auction houses because they've historically focused on the sourcing of property, so really working with people who are already 
existing collectors, and they've not spent a huge amount of time on that next generation of collectors buying and selling. But is there is there a generation of innovators coming into the auction world that may have a better idea than Sotheby's uh, long-established idea? I, I think so, and I think it's really going to be tied into technology, and it's also trying to cultivate the importance of art with those next generations, and technology is really a, an effective way of doing it. Are there any new uh, upstarts who you think have an interesting business model that, that we should pay attention to and watch? I do think that the data-driven and technology-driven companies that have an overlay into the art market are really important. And I'd love to be able to put a few names out there, but I'm on the boards of a few of these companies, mm. so I don't want to have too much of a conflict well, of interest. We only have like ten or 20,000 listeners, and they're very discreet <laughs> people. Yeah. I have no doubt. Yeah. Well, you know, um, Wendy, early on I asked whether you would share with us uh, some you know, secrets, indiscreet uh, gossip and like. Anything come to mind in the past 20-odd minutes? Oh, gosh. Um, well, there's there's just there's a lot going on in the market right now. It's um, I, I do think, and from what I've been hearing, the big-ticket items that you hear about selling at auctions yeah. in the evening sales, both in May and in, in November, I think we'll see a few more of those happen, but not at the volume that we've seen over the last 10 years. They've really peaked. Now, is that because the art uh, the auctioneers are getting wise to the uh, uh, to the very very uh, inhospitable economics of getting these things in in the first place. Are they not willing to pay for them? No, the auction markets are extremely emotional. There is very little rational uh, thought that goes in there. Um, just like other markets, we know, right? Stocks, bonds, uh, <laughs> yeah. gold, commodities, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> so the market's really driven by the buyers and sellers. The auction houses um, compete. They um, are emotionally driven, and I don't think that they're ultimately pulling back to say that there's not enough margin in these yeah. deals. That's actually one thing that surprised us when we started researching this. Sotheby's, for example, has a number of activist investors who are very, very smart, good capital allocators, one of whom sits on their board. Why is it so hard for the financial types to kind of control these companies and actually have them focus on the bottom line? Well, that's that's the challenge with the auction houses. Is they're really run by two different constituencies. You have the art specialists who have the relationships with the buyers and sellers. And then you have the financial people who are always focused on the bottom line and making sure there's going to be a profit. Those two groups, one does not necessarily overpower the other. So the CEO of the company is not really able to control those specialists because they can walk out the door with their client base and go to the competition. So it sounds irrational for a publicly traded company to not solely be focused on the bottom line. But the internal dynamics just don't permit that. So, Evan, has anything that Wendy Battleson has told us make you less bearish on Sotheby's? No, not at all. Okay. Yeah, me too. Wendy, thank you for being here. It is a delight to talk to you. And uh, and just keep on telling truth to journalists. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I do. With pleasure. All right. Well, until next time, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for being with us on Current Yield. 